Welcome to Post-Normal Times, a podcast for our complex reality and unpredictable world, where stakes are high and innovation is crucial. In this series, I get to sit down with some of my favorite minds to explore new ideas that transcend traditional academic boundaries and address our most pressing needs. I'm Andrew Vasco, Associate Provost and Director of Transdisciplinary Studies at Claremont Graduate University. Welcome to the show. So I'd like to welcome to our show today a very special guest, the Provost of Claremont Graduate University, Professor Michelle Bly is joining us today. And I'm very excited to have Michelle here because I think this is the first time that we've had a non-administrative conversation with each other in the, like the past five, four years. <laughs> it's been a minute. Has it been that long? <laughs> it's been a minute. But I'd, li- I'd like to welcome you to the show today. And I, I want to give people a chance to get to know you and the ways in which you embody uh, these principles of boundary crossing and transdisciplinarity and also how it acts out in your everyday life as somebody who, uh, as a scholar, I'll introduce in a second, knows how groups work and knows how leaders work and how leaders don't operate in a vacuum mm-hmm. and stepping up to be a leader um, in seeing the the clearest example of how the world is not a vacuum. <laughs> in fact, in, in higher ed, it's really not a vacuum. Definitely not. <laughs> so welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. And I wanted to start off by asking, you know, going into the background, you are a Claremontian, even though you're originally not from here, but you did your undergrad here. Is that I right? I did. Okay. Yes. So where did you do your undergrad? So I actually started out at Pomona College uh-huh. and I, I entered Pomona College uh, thinking that I was going to be pre-med and, <laughs> and you're Guilty. Laughing. Guilty. Yeah. I know that one. Uh, because that lasted about a semester or two. Okay. And um, then I really started to, as in a good liberal arts tradition, I started to explore different classes and different topics and all of a sudden just just realized that I had absolutely no idea where I wanted um, to end up, but that I wanted to take advantage of the liberal arts education to explore lots of different pathways. Okay. And so then what got you hooked, if not medicine? So what got me hooked was actually an anthropology class uh, I took um, from a professor at the time, uh, James McKenna. And he uh, he was a fascinating anthropologist. And he did uh, some very interesting work on sudden infant death syndrome in mm, infants okay. and how that was not just a medical uh, phenomenon, but was sociocultural as well. And that's when I started to get really excited about, well, you know, it's I, I can see still be interested in things like science and medicine, but I can do them from so many different angles and perspectives. And that's when I got hooked. Oh, that's fascinating. Okay. I'm pausing for a second okay. because one of my profound life-changing moments was related to sudden infant death syndrome also really? in undergrad. Yeah. Oh. I was I was asked to do like an independent study thing in a physiology course. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a, a write-up of some literature. And I ended up getting hooked on these theories of the neurobiology of sudden infant death syndrome. And in getting involved with that, I read some papers of a couple of researchers out at UCLA, which is how I actually began the process of becoming a graduate student in the PhD program. And I worked in the same space as those researchers at UCLA. And so there was not really about the cultural components of it. As you said, you can take something from very different angles and of all the random things to be talking about and tragic (laughs) things to be talking about that that unite us. Um, it is amazing that, yeah, 
the sudden infant death syndrome thing. And, and of course, in later in sleep neurobiology, they started to take more of the anthropological components right. into it. They're like, wait, mm-hmm. people don't all sleep the same way. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, you, family units don't sleep all the same way. The timing mm-hmm. isn't the same in every culture. And mm-hmm. that started to come in later in what we were doing. Cool. So I had no idea. We've known each other yeah, for we all were, these years. Yeah, we never... were like intellectually bounded from <laughs> the 90s maybe <laughs> or sometime in there. Um, okay, so you became an anthropologist and uh, anthropology, just to add another interesting point here, is one of the big areas that the field of transdisciplinarity takes a lot of tools from. Because I think anthropologists understood a long time ago when you're working with people, mm-hmm. then you got to have the appropriate tools to work with people that aren't mm-hmm. just numbers. Mm-hmm. I'm, I love numbers. Mm-hmm. I love I love statistics. Yeah, right. Yeah, we'll get to that in a second. Right. Um, but then you understand when you're working with people that you can't ignore complexity when they're actually in your face. <laughs> it's it's like very there. Yes. So anthropology did a really good job of adapting a lot of tools for complexity, and mm-hmm. and so. Um, you'd learned some of these things, and we've talked about it before, of understanding this difference between like an, an emic and etic mm-hmm. perspective, mm-hmm. Uh, which is something I'm not too familiar with, although I know it by different mm-hmm. by different names. But then you decided to do the very scientific version of this and going into organizational behavior, and you mm-hmm. did your PhD in mm-hmm. psychology, specifically in organizational behavior? I actually did my PhD in management, so I went even oh further. Yes. Okay, yeah. yeah. You were. <laughs> yeah, I did. <laughs> what happened? So what happened actually was a refugee camp in Kakama, Kenya. So um, my sophomore year at Pomona as an anthropology major, I decided I wanted to spend a, a semester abroad. And East Africa and the um, the Kenya Studies program seemed ideal. I wanted to, to be outside of my comfort zone. I wanted to explore a culture that was radically different from anything I'd had growing up in Spokane, Washington, or even in Claremont, California. So I traveled to to Kenya, had an amazing experience there. And the last month of that, we had an independent study project. And my independent study project was designed to be living with a family, studying cross-cultural variances in child-rearing practices. I got in my family. Uh, It was a 24-hour bus ride outside of Nairobi. I was out in the middle of nowhere. I was with the family for only three days and I got very, very sick. It turns out I contracted typhoid fever. Uh, But the long story short of that is that I ended up at the hospital in a small uh, village in uh, the northwest of Kenya without a family and without a project. And what was um, very salient at that time was that there was a refugee camp um, right outside of this little village. And after I recovered from typhoid, I went knocking on the door and I said, I'm here. Is there anything I can do to help? And they said, yes. And the next thing I knew, I was working with four to five NGOs, and we were working on all kinds of aspects of organizationally, how do you manage resources in a refugee camp? And that's where I said, you know what? I really want to study management. I want to study organizations because I can see that the power of organizations are really how you can have a tremendous impact on people, both for good and for bad. Because some aspects of the of the camp were not functioning smoothly for a lot of reasons that I later learned were structural, were uh, leadership issues, were politics, all of the sorts of things that we study in organizational behavior. So that was a a, a very um, convoluted path that I took to that ended 
me up in a PhD in management program. Okay, so you're doing a PhD in management, and you decided that I am from the Pacific Northwest. I am then going to do my undergraduate study in Southern California. Mm-hmm. Let's go to Buffalo. Yes, let's <laughs> so, go to Buffalo. Because who doesn't want to go to Buffalo? <laughs> who doesn't? Okay, um, so you spent your time um, studying management, but you specifically were studying a particular thing in, in, under that umbrella of management, right? It was so exciting, Andy, because I I found when I came back from, from East Africa and decided I wanted to go to graduate school, I found a master's of science in interdisciplinary studies. And this was in 1995. So uh, at the time, I didn't even know programs like that existed. And so I was so excited to start that master's program because and go on to the PhD because what allowed me, I took courses in communications. They had a great communications department, social psychology, uh, obviously management, uh, a lot of research. So I really got a chance to, again, uh, get a taste of all different kinds of departments. And in those days, and master's in interdisciplinary studies at SUNY Buffalo meant I was the conduit between professors from different departments Mm. that didn't even talk to one another. And that's when I realized there's a lot of opportunities opportunity here to really bridge disciplinary divides yeah. in ways that could lead to all kinds of exciting new projects. It's a, it's amazing when you realize that um, that the silos are the structures upon which the academy is built. So you mm-hmm. can't literally de-silo something, mm-hmm. but you do always have the power to bridge. Mm-hmm. Um, that's mm-hmm. an extra few steps that you can mm-hmm. learn along the way. Mm-hmm. And there had even been some actually a decent amount of funding from some some organizations to produce more of those bridge builders um, because they're seeing, mm-hmm. especially in these complex areas, cancer research is a big one. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the U.S., anything related to sustainability, just healthcare itself, sure. like everybody does their own thing and stays in their own lane. And mm-hmm. most big problems have the bottleneck of not having the translator, of not having the bridge builder, not having the conduit. And and unfortunately, at the same time, there was a, there was a trend, especially in the 90s, to have interdisciplinary programs that didn't survive. Mm-hmm. Um, because at the end, they were kind of spilling into an economy that said, so what are you going to do with that? Mm-hmm. And there wasn't the same language to say, I'm the translator, I'm the conduit. Um, and we weren't at a place socially enough where people were recognizing that, um, I always used COVID as an example because it's mm-hmm. so clear, mm-hmm. that um, you might have developed the drug. <laughs> you did not solve the problem of the disease. Right. You know, like there's so many other things that you have to take mm-hmm. care of. And even if you have 10 other solutions, unless you have the person who is the thread themselves or a team of people who are the thread themselves, mm-hmm. nothing connects. And mm-hmm. that is not something that I think we could have even had the same kind of conversation about five mm-hmm. years ago. Now mm-hmm. it's so much clearer the mm-hmm. importance of that. So you were ahead of the curve. Um, you started off with anthropology, so you understood complexity, mm-hmm. or at least to a certain extent. Yes. You had lived through some very real experiences mm-hmm. um, by being in Kenya and seeing on the ground. You know, a lot of people go through college and they're like, it's a class-based experience. And the biggest thing that ever happened to them was very localized to their particular dorm room or their mm-hmm. their roommate or, you know, the one professor they had. So you had this very global experience. And then on top of that, you decided to go to the center of the universe in Buffalo. <laughs> and then in Buffalo, you get to see this additional interdisciplinary mm-hmm. wonderland that you have, mm-hmm. which is, is really cool. So how did you go from Buffalo 
back to Claremont? Well, again, not a direct path. So I, I, I was really fortunate while I was in Buffalo to be able to put together a committee where I had a communications professor, a social psych professor, and a leadership management professor. And so I had a great experience. And when I got finished, I decided what I really wanted to do was go back out into the world and apply that knowledge and do some consulting and really help organizations to be more effective. And uh, that was my plan. I was uh, in the process of implementing that plan. I had applications out to all kinds of consulting firms all over the country. And that was in September of 2001. And 9-11 happened. And 9-11 happened uh, literally three weeks before my defense was scheduled for my dissertation. So I, at, at the time, was in California and wasn't even sure I would be able to fly back to Buffalo to, to defend. So it was a really tumultuous time. And at that moment, I started to think, Maybe all is not going to go as I planned, and maybe I need to look at some other pathways. And I had loved Claremont. I'd loved my experience at Pomona College, and a friend uh, told me there was an opportunity for a postdoc opening at Claremont McKenna College mm. at the Kravis Leadership Institute. And when I heard that, it just felt like all the pieces were aligned because I loved leadership. I loved the Claremont Colleges. I, I thought a postdoc would be a great way for me to sort of ride out the tide of chaos and uncertainty in the wake of 9-11. And so I thought, this is, this is exactly right. I can, I can follow my research ideas. I can do, delve into some more problems and issues that I want to explore. And then maybe I'll go back to consulting or maybe not. And that, That's super interesting. I was actually just in a conversation the other day with a few colleagues talking about the moment that 9-11 happened. We all knew where we were. It's one of those very yes. Im imprinted mm -hmm. points of our lives. And I think we're going to have more of those. We are having mm -hmm. more of those right mm -hmm. now. So mm -hmm. clearly there's, there's stuff that's profound that's going on. Mm -hmm. What I'm curious about, not just situationally, how that imprinted you, but how about cognitively or emotionally, mm -hmm. intellectually, did that change how you thought about the work you were doing, about the vocational path that you were taking, that this was maybe something that had different meaning to you in this, in mm -hmm. this new world that we were in? Or was this really logistical and pragmatic that like, okay, I'm in California now. <laughs> I, have a, mm -hmm. I have a position that gives me mm -hmm. some time. Was, was the change that you experienced while the world was shifting something that was even on your mind and as you reflect on it now, mm -hmm. something that would have happened anyway, given who you are and the way that you go about things? You know, looking back on it, I, I think it, it did fundamentally shift my trajectory because, you know, it... it as I think back to that exact moment when, you know, I saw the, the, the television and, and the impact, the sense of certainty and psychological safety that I had had constructed for myself completely dissipated. I mean, I, I remember very silently um, driving that day or the day after and seeing a jet overhead and wondering, you know, okay, what does this mean? You know, are we in, in military action here? These were times when people were talking about duct taping their their windows and oh, I mean I it was it was it was a a very very crazy time talk about uncertainty and complexity and so I think for me it did fundamentally shift my sense of okay this is who I am and this is of course what I'm going to do to well, maybe there are some other possibilities again. In the same way that I had explored possibilities at Pomona, I thought, well, maybe there are other possibilities that I should be exploring. Okay, so we 
had a, an episode that we recorded early on in the podcast for the first season um, where our guest was Dr. David Maggs, who we, we talked about worlds collapsing. Mm-hmm. And he was mm-hmm. talking about it in terms of a moratorium on cod fishing in, mm. in Newfoundland, which mm-hmm. sounds not as interesting as it was <laughs> as it played out. Um, but he described it as a world collapsing. And then later he was a professional musician and suddenly, you know, there was no space for an aspiring classical pianist to be given airtime. Mm-hmm. And so he had another world collapsing. Mm-hmm. 9-11 was a world collapsing. Mm-hmm. It was an ontological was. shift mm-hmm. when our sense of safety, when our sense of mm-hmm. normal, when, I mean, mm-hmm. just go to an airport. Like, you, you know right. how quickly. Yeah. I'm seeing a thing, though, where there are two very distinct poles that you can take on of when a world collapses. Mm-hmm. Um, you can really strongly cling to the things that you miss from the days before. Mm-hmm. That's why we don't say this is a new normal, but yes, mm-hmm. a new normal. Mm-hmm. Or you can say what you said, like, what are my options now? What does this look like now? Mm-hmm. And there's a world reconstruction. Mm-hmm. Is that your personality? Is that something that you learned along the way? Does it run in your family? Are you an, mm-hmm. Are you somebody who strategizes in a kind of uh, a way where you see the things in front of you and you just kind of naturally go there? Hmm. That's a good question. I, I think I'm the kind of person that if if something shocks me and shocks my worldview, I take that as an opportunity to say, okay, well, you know, what what can I learn from this? What what different directions might I go now given this new reality? Like I'm very I'm very much about this. The, I can't pretend that things are the way they were, you know, you know, on nine ten. Yeah. This is my new reality, and what are the what are the opportunities that this pathway could afford me? And let's explore those. And and I've always just sort of said, okay, maybe it is my personality. I'm going to walk down this pathway a little while. And I always tell my students, you can walk down you can always turn around and walk back or you can always switch directions but you don't know what's down that path until you've taken at least a few exploratory steps and and checked out the new terrain. Well I think also with world collapsing even that terminology is so strong it feels like physically you know you've lost everything but it's it's a cognitive and emotional construct Mm -hmm. like a world collapses turns out you still get up the next day most of the time Mm -hmm. you know almost all world collapsing is like when you become a teenager your world collapses but you still you know you still have to get up the next day when when you get dumped your world collapses (laughs) but you know like (laughs) you still go on on. (laughs) um and the 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 interesting thing that we're trying to do in transdisciplinarity is not make it so scary when a world Mm -hmm. collapses it's like Mm -hmm. guess what Mm -hmm. um you have to accept that the world's changing so quickly. It's going to feel like this this mm-hmm. cognitive, emotional construct of a collapse is happening. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. you can handle it again because mm-hmm. you can see the opportunities in it and you can move forward. And so I'm not sure if your education had created that that side of you or if mm-hmm. you had selected the education because you had that side of you to begin mm-hmm. with. I mean, this mm-hmm. is not necessarily causal. Mm-hmm. But um, it's something I'm seeing over and over again. And I mm-hmm. think that there is a set of traits that people have that understand this philosophical problem of my world collapsed mm-hmm. isn't something that actually means I collapsed too. Right. And and that is the point of a transdisciplinary education to, to give more tools of it. Mm-hmm. That was the point of that comment that we've been kind of tossing around a future-proofing your future. It's like, right. things will feel like they collapse. They're not collapsing. Right. You're not collapsing. Like, you've got all the power in the world to do things still, but you got to understand how to make those choices. So yeah. I'd imagine, as you're telling me this story about Kenya, 
that you had it in you at least at that point already because you were knocking on doors right after you got out of the hospital bed. You're like, oh, I still have work to do, mm-hmm. you know? Like it, you, you were doing this before you were, you were exposed to an interdisciplinary studies mm-hmm. program, this, this kind yeah. of translation. Okay, so then you have an interesting career here. Mm-hmm. You're at Claremont McKenna, you're mm-hmm. at uh, Kravitz as a postdoc, mm-hmm. and then what happens? And then I'd only been there a month or two, and Ron Riggio, who is the director, he said, Michelle, there's an opportunity at Claremont Graduate University. They're hiring. I think you should apply. And I said, but Ron, I just got here. I haven't even, you know, I haven't even had a chance to walk down this pathway very far yet. And he said, well, you know, just go for the job talk and see. And I, I gave a job talk here, just literally up the stairs from where we are now. And I knew when I came to CGO, I loved the place. I loved the students. I loved the faculty. I loved the focus of the university. And I kept, it was very funny because I kept trying to talk myself out of it because my postdoc was actually very well paid. I had no teaching uh, assignments. It was, I could focus a hundred percent on research. And it was like one of those situations in life where all of, if you put up the, the pluses and the minuses, most of the, the the decisions factors were in the minuses, and mm. I really should. All of my my cognition was saying you should stay in the postdoc. You should you know do your two years in the postdoc, and then look for another opportunity. And I threw all of my pluses and minuses out the window, and I said, I want to I want to go to CGU. I want to be an assistant professor where I'm suddenly teaching eight classes and <laughs> that I've never prepped before. And I literally showed up and I, I, I was outside of my office and I didn't have the keys yet. And another student came up and said, do you know where Professor Bly is? Have you met her yet? And I was like, well, actually, that's me. And I had, you know, doctoral students lining up out the door and I had literally just been a doctoral student three months prior to wow. that. So it was a really radical shift. And again, probably what, you know, it just, I just, it was one of those opportunities where I just said, I, I have to go for it. Do you think if you were to um, think about how your, you had to transform in your life during certain periods, do you think that there was a larger transformation of you in graduate school to your, your time in Claremont? Or do you mm-hmm. think your mm-hmm. early time in Claremont was more transformative in graduate school? I would say my early time in Claremont was more transformative, bar none. Yeah. I, you know, I found this to be the case, too. I mean, graduate school was, in a lot of ways, a, a very um, important time in my life. I got to experience so many things. I grew up so much in so many ways. Um, but for the folks that I saw that kind of were still in the graduate, kind of like the same labs that I was in or the... Mm-hmm. I suddenly had to like do backflips when I became an assistant professor in my first job. Mm-hmm. It was everything was like, yes. oh my gosh, oh my gosh, how do you do this? Okay, I'm learning, I'm learning, I'm learning. And yeah. after a couple of years, finally, mm-hmm. not not feeling like my um, my teeth were all going to fall out by mm-hmm. being consistently punched in the face with new challenges. <laughs> yeah. um, but those first couple of years, especially, are a wild ride and Very just wild. massive brain expansion. Mm-hmm. So, what were some of the big things you learned in those first couple of years? I learned I love to teach, and I love to teach because I learn so much from the students. So it it really is a, a 
bi-directional relationship that is one of the most rewarding things. I had taught at SUNY Buffalo, but it was, you know, one class. I had 55 students. I didn't get a chance to really get to know them. And my classes at CGU, I did get to know the students. And I learned that I also love to mentor because mentoring is the same kind of two-way street where you're learning from them, they're learning from you, you're finding these kinds of um, overlapping areas of passion or interest where you just, you know, it, it doesn't even feel like work when yeah. you find those collaborations because you just get so energized by them. So it was very stressful. I did feel like I was doing like multiple black backflips and I was often really flying the plane as I was building it because I didn't, you know, I had not gotten really a whole lot of formal training on how to mentor graduate students. I, I only had my one mentor to, to go from. And and then very early on, just in my second year here at CGU, my mentor suddenly passed away from a heart attack mm-hmm. at 54 years old. And that hit me really hard mm-hmm. because on on a couple of levels, I mean, he had been my you know my academic mentor, friend, guidance. Uh, we had projects together. He had been such a, a big part of my academic identity, and then also the fact that I realized that I was also on a very similar track of being overworked, overstressed. <laughs> uh, you know, not um, not necessarily having the best work life balance yeah. that that I needed. And so that was another sort of event in life that just, I I had to transform myself again and say, you know, this is, this is really hard and I'm going to have to change my academic identity and I'm going to have to change the way I approach my work. Okay. So there's a lot in what you just said, but before I forget, I have to pin this down. Mm -hmm. You referred to mentorship as a collaboration. Mm -hmm. Can you elaborate on that? So I, I really believe, I mean, I've studied leadership for a long time and, and I believe that mentorship is a, is a sort of a, a subsection of leadership where it's a very unique relationship where you've defined parameters around, I am going to mentor you, you have asked me to mentor you. So there's this mentor-mentee kind of um, role definition and that if it's really going to work, it, both parties, as in probably any relationship in life, both parties have to have to get something out of that relationship. And to the extent that you are really looking at your mentee as a collaborative partner, and, and one of the things I love about CGU is we have such great students and they really are, they're, they're scholars. And when you find those areas where there's overlap in your passion and you collaborate together, they bring an experience, a set of perspectives, assumptions that's different from yours. And if you find ways that those can uh, complement one another in a true collaboration, that's when the magic happens, Mm -hmm. in my experience. Yeah, I I think that that collaborative mindset and seeing any kind of interpersonal relationship as its own collaboration. Um, I mean, mentorship is one of them. Teaching Mm -hmm. is a Mm -hmm. collaboration. Mm -hmm. And if you extend that a little bit with more people, Mm -hmm. um, I think that that's one of the things that we try explaining in the, like a, in a transdisciplinary philosophy also. And sometimes you have to say it as an administrator, mm-hmm. like, I'm not going to do that for you. I will collaborate with you to get mm-hmm. that done. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like mm-hmm. let's, let's set up yes. the parameters of what this relationship is going to look like, because it not only commands that um, you're both aligning your goals and, and you're finding a common ground mm-hmm. to, to meet on, um, but it also opens you up to learning from right. the other side. Yeah. 
And I don't think there's any bigger gift than being paid to learn. Mm-hmm. It's like crazy mm-hmm. that we can be in mm-hmm. higher ed and yeah, there's headaches and there's a reason why we don't have any work-life balance and that there's always these missiles coming at us from all directions. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, I get up, I'm like, okay, I'm going to be paid mm-hmm. to learn again today. Mm-hmm. And I'd rather be paid to learn this way than my K through 12 experience. Like, I don't want to be that student who's got to mm-hmm. sit with that, you know, that, that structured form. Mm-hmm. Like I'm at a point in my life where I want to learn from people who also want to learn. That to me is so exciting and it's so great to be in that space. And it's it's great to be in that space here because we do attract students that come from so many different backgrounds and disciplines that I very quickly was involved in projects that were not 100% in my wheelhouse, right? I was learning about ethics and leadership. I was learning about gender and leadership. I was learning about stereotyping and bias from our social psych students. I had done taken seminars in that, but I'd never done research in stereotyping and attributions. And so I, I got to learn so much from them because in part, we didn't uh, we didn't sort of mandate the sort of traditional academic mentorship model that I am the expert and you must come to study with me to learn on my topic. Yeah, that that's old. Yes, and <laughs> once you blow that up, yeah. the possibilities are so much more exciting because yeah. then you can you 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 attract students that have some overlapping interests, but yeah. not necessarily that they want to be exactly experts in what you know. You know, sometimes people will really want to go from where their comfort zone is to their comfort zone adjacent. Mm -hmm. So, you know, Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm a neuroscientist and physiologist. You're Mm -hmm. like, Oh really? I mean, they're kind of this. Okay. (laughs) Um, but when you go from like neuroscience to historian, Mm -hmm. when you have to bridge that distance, that's Mm -hmm. that much space you're going to grow. When you, when you do that kind of collaboration. And I think the same is true for so many things in life. Um, you know, if, if you are collaborating with another organizational psychologist who doesn't study leadership, but they might study, I don't know, um, give me a topic and organize. I don't know. I don't know organizational psychology. So I'm about to be called out. In engagement, my, motivation. Engagement. Yeah, motivation. Yeah. Stress, work-life balance. Oh, all these things. All yeah. we, we study all of But these. like you kind of like – you kind of know what's there because it's a part of your foundation, even though you don't have the specificity for mm-hmm. it. Right. Um, but then, you know, as an organizational psychologist, suddenly you have to talk to a philosopher, mm-hmm. you know, the ethics of this. That's mm-hmm. You're going to grow a lot in that space. They may or may not grow in that space as well. But if you're able to see it as a collaboration, then it's such a cool opportunity. And mm-hmm. we we love getting people together in our transdisciplinary courses for this very reason. Mm-hmm. because we force you to be in a course mm-hmm. with – you know, all of our doctoral students take a tra- at least one transdisciplinary course. Many of them take many. Mm-hmm. And like, you know, history student, you're going to have to sit with the, the computer science person mm-hmm. or you're going to have to sit with the, the statistician or like you're going to have to make a bridge mm-hmm. and you're going to come out of this the other side. Now, people will handle that different ways. It's not everybody as excited as I am about those kinds of things, mm-hmm. but I, I very strongly believe it's one of the biggest strengths of CGU. Mm-hmm. Um, it is... Just, just, just that we have a devotion to making sure that people have that opportunity speaks to our ability to notice that um, we're all we're all here to be better tomorrow because of the interactions we have today. Mm-hmm. So 
If that's not a soapbox, and if we're not running for office in the next couple of years, then, right. you've, then you've heard it here first, folks. This is this is launching our political platform. I will say, I have there are two classes. I, you know, I've been teaching for over twenty years now, and there's two classes that stand out to me above heads and shoulders above all the rest in terms of just how much I learned and how much I I feel everyone learned. And one was the first transdisciplinary class that I taught here on leadership and followership, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and I had students from music and art and history and philosophy and and psychology and the whole array history. It was a wonderful experience. And then the second one, uh, I took a leave of absence and worked at Naoma Business School in France for a year. And I taught a management, an MBA course there. I had 24 students from 24 different countries. Oh, that's another great. That was amazing. I mean, just having, uh, you know, discussions about leadership models uh, with that kind of global diversity in the classroom. It was amazing. I love the global diversity because that also, um, when I, when I taught a course on kind of transdisciplinary basics, um, you, you have to go back into the uh, the the trends in the academy mm-hmm. that go back to specialization. Mm-hmm. Well, the way we specialize in the United States is very particular. Mm-hmm. Um, it's mm-hmm. like we're hyper specialized. Mm-hmm. We have a specialist of the specialist to do this one thing. <laughs> right. that, and if you didn't hire that specialist for your job or you didn't right. consult that specialist, then what are you thinking? You must right. be stupid because you didn't know. Like mm-hmm. in a lot of other places, I'm not sure if it's a luxury. I'm not sure if it's it's a norm. Mm-hmm. Um, you're like, they're just a person. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> I could be a specialist too. I'm, mm-hmm. In fact, I don't have the luxury of paying that much to a single person who's got that many certificates and credentials. And so right. I have to be able to pivot a little bit with mm-hmm. what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's one of the things that, uh, the the entire movement of transdisciplinarity kind of speaks to is like mm-hmm. we're a little heavy on the specialization. Mm-hmm. Even graduate education is a little heavy on the specialization. However, the specialization that comes with graduate education wasn't that you had all of the content knowledge domain of being an organizational psychologist or a neuroscientist. It was that you have the space in your head to take this large amount of content area and then build bridges from that as your foundation. Mm-hmm. And that's the transdisciplinary approach. And that's what a graduate with a transdisciplinary approach can then do. Is like, I might not want to dig deeper all the time into this one content mm-hmm. domain because it's a content domain, but I can build a bridge to any other domain that links this. And that is the superpower of the transdisciplinarian that, mm-hmm. that leaves with an understanding of that sense. I love that. I, I idea of the superpower. I, yeah. I do. I think that's very, a, a very apt metaphor. It is a super, like a superpower. I'll, I'll admit, um, I was a nerd. If you can believe that <laughs> as a kid and I liked comic books, mm. um, the entire Marvel revolution was just mm-hmm. like three decades too late for me, but it's okay. Cause <laughs> it's I just okay. knew in my corner <laughs> when I was reading comic books, mm-hmm. then it, it served a purpose so that I can now do commentaries on the Infinity Gauntlet or Very like, no, cool. that's not what really happened because <laughs> people need to hear that I was one of the original um, experts of the Infinity the Infinity Wars and all that stuff. So um, I do sometimes rely back on that childhood stuff yeah. to frame in, in my metaphorical space. of. And Sounds like another podcast series. It could be. It could be. I'm not sure that I should speak any more to that, though, <laughs> if I want any credibility or at any faculty meeting or in any cabinet meeting. Meeting where um, we're discussing things that, like, you go, is that your superpower, Andy? Is that what you're going to do? <laughs> with what superpower? So, got to be careful with that. So, all right, I, I've I've detracted a bit of where we were going, but your temporal progression mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. super interesting. You mentioned going to 
you were in Paris. Mm-hmm. For the, oh, right. So you were yes. in Paris at a business school for a year. Actually, um, two years. Two years. I okay. intended to go for only one. And again, you're, I'm, I'm seeing a theme in yeah. this narrative. Yeah. Uh, plans did not work out as quickly as I would like. To, yeah. to, to, it took me longer than a year to do what I needed to do. So okay. I decided to stay for two. And what did you learn besides the international global piece when you were in France that fed into the the brain mind space of, of Michelle? So I think I learned a lot of humility. Okay. It's it's very interesting to you know be a to be treated as an expert in your field or in your domain for many years, and then go to a completely different context and culture where oh sure I can be an expert in organizational psychology, but ask me a question in French and I am, an, <laughs> am literally an infant. Yeah. Yeah. And, and very very humbling to to recognize that there's an entire domain. Of of knowledge that you know, I I just was very very at, at the beginning level. So that was very very good. Not that I ever had a lot of hubris or thought of myself as very egocentric, but there is a sense of there was a sense in France of going back and starting again. Right? I thought I, I had built up this level of expertise and experience and knowledge. Well, starting a leadership center in the U.S. is very different than starting one in France. And so although I thought I had expertise and domain knowledge in, in many ways, I, I was challenged to sort of reframe and, and start again and transform. And, okay, how do, I ha- how do I lead here that is going to look very differently than it did in the U.S.? Same thing with teaching. I, there were m- many aspects of teaching that I realized were – I had developed that were unique to this context of graduate only in a, a, a pretty intimate setting, small classes that when I was then suddenly asked to do more of a undergraduate model of teaching to hundreds of students didn't translate as well as I had assumed that they would. Yeah. So there was lots of relearning, which was wonderful because I feel like it gave me, again, an opportunity to test some resilience, to stretch, to be challenged in new ways. Uh, and then coming back to see my my years at CGU in a different perspective and light mm. because you can't you can't leave and go and live in another culture for right. two years and come back and 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 I I literally came back uh, uh, two weeks before the presidential election where all of my American colleagues were telling me that Hillary Clinton was the foregone conclusion to be the next president wow. and I was giving a leadership seminar on gender and leadership the morning oh. that Donald Trump uh, was elected so oh, I came back to a country that I felt a little bit um I felt that my foundation that I thought was pretty firm was not there anymore. I had family members that weren't talking to one another because of different political beliefs. I, I it, it, So it felt very, very unsettling. And I think that was also just, you know, at a time when I was transitioning back to a place that I thought I knew, but I didn't. It kind of sounds like another world collapse. Yeah, it um, was. <laughs> and so if, if you're anything like your patterns have indicated – now that the world's collapsing again, you're like, okay, what are my options? Is, was that what happened? That is exactly what happened. And I did, I I, I pursued a couple of uh, opportunities. I was offered a really nice position starting a leadership center in Australia. And I thought, you know, maybe this is, maybe this is the time to go down that path. And I did go down that path and I came as close as signing the contract and then I realized that it it just didn't feel right. It wasn't the right time. I was just bouncing from France to Australia, and I really needed 
to explore what I needed to do here. And so instead of taking the position in Australia, I took the position as dean of the School of Social uh, Sciences here. Yes, and you did. I decided I, w- I was going to, I had been resisting administration for quite a long time. I had been associate dean and chair and director in different smaller roles, but I had been resisting that that formal full-time leap into administration. And I realized that I didn't think I could teach leadership and and the importance of leadership if I didn't actually enact it. And so I decided that that's what I needed to do. Yeah, there is an irony there that you could... And and an irony that some people are very proud to sit squarely in Mm -hmm. um, of of saying, I study leadership, but I am not a leader. (laughs) You know, it's... That's something that also on my side I noticed a lot in, in as a neuroscience professor. I was in basic sciences, mm-hmm. which meant you teach more of the textbook facts. Mm-hmm. But when somebody asks you what do you do in a stroke, you're like, eh. <laughs> right. <laughs> and so then I was like, similarly, like I can't not know what to do in a stroke. I have to talk to my neurologist colleagues mm-hmm. and be like, how does this translate to what you do mm-hmm. and figure that out? And then go in the clinical classes with them to be like, mm-hmm. okay. This is why I'm teaching you this because this is what it looks like mm-hmm. in a stroke. And and that was something that was really unusual because a lot of times things are so specialized again that I'm not mm-hmm. supposed to know what to do in the stroke. I'm just supposed to know what comes in this very particular right. lane that mm-hmm. I'm in. Mm-hmm. And yet what is my usefulness to the world? I mm-hmm. at that point I realized it was my building that bridge to mm-hmm. to being so, you know is it just other people need to know this in a practical way. They need right. to know it in an applied way. And I think that that leadership, it speaks a lot that you did that and you stepped up. And that is when I met you was, I think, just around the time mm-hmm. that you were becoming the Dean of Social Sciences. And I had just come to, to CGU. Mm-hmm. I know that you had taught a course in leadership and followership, mm-hmm. which I've always been interested. Um, and then we got to talking and yes. we we got to spend some time together learning about peace mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that was one of um, these very cool experiences mm-hmm. where uh, we got to be uh, transported to an institute in South Bend, mm-hmm. you know, with, with University of Notre Dame, where we were looking to um, see what we could do um, as an institution that kind of mixed our different areas of expertise around these questions of peace and, and what can be offered to students and how do we mm-hmm. how do we set this up? And it's an ongoing conversation. Yes. It's an ongoing conversation. But I learned a ton from that experience. Me too. Um, what did you get from that time? And if and if you need a minute to think about it, let me know because I can speak poetically on a lot of this. But I, mm-hmm. in, in addition to getting to know you and, and your pathway, mm-hmm. and which was uh, really cool, um, it, it, it was one of those moments where I shifted in, in how I thought about things. Mm-hmm. I think what I gained from that experience was it rekindled my passion for transdisciplinarity because I hadn't had the chance when I was in France and then coming back into administration to really kind of get outside of the social sciences. And that conference uh, really opened my mind to the fact that uh, a topic like peace is just like leadership, where you can have people coming from all kinds of backgrounds, whether or not it's in um, public service and government or social sciences or philosophy or social justice. And, and, and you have all of social structures, policy. I mean, there's so many different ways that you can approach that uh, that topic. And, and that's what got me really interesting and excited about it, because it, it had that. Yes. Uh, it has that ability to bring together people from all walks of life and and have very, very interesting, unique 
um, conversations about it with no easy answers. I mean, talk about complexity. Yes. <laughs> I, very similarly. Mm-hmm. I, I, I think the thing that I came out of there with was that if you don't want peace to work, then study it as an isolated topic. Mm-hmm. Like that is that is the mm-hmm. surest way for mm-hmm. it to not work. Mm-hmm. You really have to study it in the context of everything, everything. else, yeah. including the structures yes. and understanding philosophically of justice and mm-hmm. uh, understanding systems, like mm-hmm. all of those things. So yes, as a complex space, mm-hmm. if you isolate something that is itself complex, then there's no quicker way to it not working. It's just not going to happen. And and so that got me thinking a lot about what we're trying to do in transdisciplinary studies mm-hmm. and bringing back in that complexity question of, okay, if you're going to take on something difficult as the world is asking of us to do right now, mm-hmm. um, let's not pretend that it's isolated and let's bring in all of the voices and let's have a little bit of, of I call it epistemic humility, mm-hmm. be like, mm-hmm. we don't have all the knowledge mm-hmm. in this classroom. Know that there's a lot more to be had, um, but I can do something. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure I can do something. And I will learn what we can do better as we start to talk about it. And there was this emergent space that came from mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. So um, one of the things that I, I did want to ask you, it's, it's making you rewind a little bit, was that you were global in a number mm-hmm. of situations in your mm-hmm. life after um, Kenya. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. you were in situations where that anthropology background may or may not have have become surfaced where where you start to apply it and be like I'm in France now mm-hmm. the model here is different the the, the leadership model is mm-hmm. different the, like and and so I was wondering if you were ever aware of it surfacing if it did even surface um, which is fair because some people also move from disciplinary identity to another and they bury things and it doesn't come up sometimes that's healthier because you're like I need to forget that time in my life for whatever reason um, yeah. but did it come up when you were in France again and does it come up now in your current space? Absolutely. I, I think, you know, it's it's hard to, I love to travel and I love to visit different cultures and I love to experience different customs and, and walks of life. And what I realized in France was, uh, you know, even living in Kenya for six months was a relatively short period of time. Living in France for two years, you get past all of that, you know, sort of um, culture shock and newness and, and you really start to see what aspects of culture have really shaped you and your identity in a way that I think anthropology sort of framed me to, to, to focus on. And, you know, people will say, expats will say, you never feel more American than you do when you live somewhere else, because it makes all of those pieces of your cultural identity so much more salient. And people are constantly uh, calling you out on that. Like, mm-hmm. okay, you know, what what's going on in America? What's the, you know, you're suddenly the, you know, the expert on on your, and, and the representative of your home culture. And I think when I what I realized through that process was that I anthropology it was my and will always be my love because it's the study of humanity and that is what I love more than anything else. I love studying human beings and why on earth they do the things that they do <laughs> and and uh, and in trying uh, you know sometimes to make sense of it and then other times realizing that there is absolutely no sense to be made of it and that's that's a lot of fun for me. Okay, so we both also wear although yours are probably a little more, a little heavier than mine, administrative hats now, mm-hmm. um, which um, as we introduce the show, we still haven't gotten to the the journey from being the dean of social sciences mm-hmm. here mm-hmm. to being the provost of CGU. Mm-hmm. Um, what was 
what were the the considerations you had in your mind of going from the dean role to the provost role? Because you had already, I mean, you had been a, a very effective dean in the space that you had been from somebody from the outside, and um, you had you had worked through a lot of different challenges. You had um, helped the institution in a lot of different ways, and there was a time that you could step up and be a provost. Was it still the same voice that said, "I study leadership. It's I have to I have to make good on it," or was this actually you had a you had more that you learned along the way of of being a dean and realized my job isn't done. I think it was both. I, I think that you know if anybody that's listening has ever been in a position where you know the, in this case the president came to me and said you know Michelle I'd really like you to step up into this position. I think right now you're the right person and. I, I would like you to take this position. There's a sort of a sense of duty or responsibility that, you know, I can hardly, um, after 20 years of telling my students to step into leadership roles and to, you know, not um, never shy away from the ability to make the maximum impact to make your world a better place. You, you can't then look yourself in the mirror and go, oh, you know, sorry, not, I'm not feeling it today. Uh, um, so there, there, was a, there was definitely a sense of duty and responsibility. And there was also a sense that after being for five years that I, 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 I wouldn't have said that I was ready, but I should by all objective outside purposes have been ready. I mean, I've, you know, five years is a long time to be in a dean's role. And, um, and so although it was a, a big stretch for me, I, it, it wasn't as big a stretch as I probably convinced myself <laughs> that it was. So um, I thought about this when you first described it, when you said you were interested in organizations and management mm-hmm. because you saw mm-hmm. things being less efficient and somewhat mismanaged mm-hmm. with these NGOs mm-hmm. that you were working mm-hmm. with. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you formally studied it. Mm-hmm. And then you informally lived it in a lot of different ways that you mm-hmm. went through. You had your cognitive domain knowledge that was very formalized. Mm-hmm. You had your lived experience, situated knowledge in another space. Mm-hmm. If you were to see yourself in Kenya again, mm-hmm. noticing that the management part wasn't working, mm-hmm. um, would you still think that the way to improve the the system that you saw that wasn't working as efficiently as it ought to have been to study management formally, or what else would you add to that? Would you even see it as a problem anymore and understand the 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 beauty of an imperfect system? Hmm. That's a that's a great question. I I think. Your question highlights for me one of my fundamental assumptions is that uh, that systems are imperfect, but it is our role and responsibility to try to continuously improve them. That that doesn't necessarily have to be the the status quo, right? We don't always have to let systems go into entropy and chaos. And so I think that's part. I, I would study management again. I think it gives you all of the tool. You know, we've talked about systems theory, uh, chaos theory. It, it gives you both the understanding theoretically that these systems are incredibly complicated. And if it were easy to to fix them, if it was easy to fix higher ed as a as an industry or a college as a system, th- there's a lot of really smart people that would have done that already. Yeah. So, um, so it's a it's a both and. It's a I would study that again. I understand that I'm in an incredibly complicated, uncertain system that's undergoing rapid disruption, and we are 
woefully uh, un- unprepared because higher ed has, for the most part, been a, a bastion of traditionality and you know slow, um, steady um, status quo uh, kind of defense for a very long time. And so I think I both um, the study of, of management organizations helps me to to accept that and also to have the the responsibility to say, but that that's not inevitable that we we are a lot of smart people and if we communicate more effectively if we structure more efficiently if we have better leadership if we have better training and development if we have all of the things that we've been studying about organizations for centuries and we apply it we can do better and we should do better so i guess to to follow up on that do you think that what we're seeing is i mean a crisis in higher ed is is something that is mm-hmm. probably deserves a little bit of elaborating, mm-hmm. in that we have mm-hmm. a lot of people who are not looking to higher ed the way that they have been previously. Mm-hmm. That education mm-hmm. is often something that has to be defended mm-hmm. um, beyond its face value. Mm-hmm. That like, well, what is this getting me? And a lot of it is because the return on investment, the financial burden of education, mm-hmm. is it is tough to explain. Yes. And and how do you quantify that at the end of the day when you're like, but I feel like I've learned so much. Mm-hmm. Well, how do you put a price tag on that? Mm-hmm. And and mm-hmm. you're speaking different languages around mm-hmm. where these things are. And mm-hmm. you can see other market forces that have kind of taken hold there. And you see political forces that have, mm-hmm. that have kind mm-hmm. of, um, I would say, taken advantage of this questioning mm-hmm. of education mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. So mm-hmm. we, we can see education being challenged mm-hmm. and feeling Absolutely. a lot of pressure. Mm-hmm. And we're, we're feeling it specifically um, very, very acutely in the administrative spaces because yes. we were educated. We have the respect for it. We've given our lives back to this. But we also can see, like, it's it's not something that's that we can just have the luxury of being taken at face value of, of having the value that it, that it mm-hmm. did when we were, mm-hmm. we were being educated. So there, there is that. Mm-hmm. The question I have though for you is, are we experiencing another world collapse? And are we looking at this as what are my options? Mm-hmm. Or are you seeing a system that can be, that can be approached and, you know, take out the monkey wrench. Let's do a little tightening of certain mm-hmm. things. Let's mm-hmm. let's fix the things that we see fixing and mm-hmm. that would, that need fixing in the system. I would say it's closer to the world collapse. I, I really do. I, I say that because I remember many years, almost a decade before COVID and some of the technology disruption we started to see in higher ed, I w- was giving talks about the impending collapse of higher ed and the crisis of higher ed. And I felt in those days that I was really trying to wake people up. And then, you know, we flash forward to all of the, the, the changes that we've seen over the, even the last five years. And now I think people have woken up. I no longer have to convince people that there are huge crises, crises there's disruptions there. I mean, we have everything from the the cultural questioning of what is the value of a higher education and how do you quantify that as, as you you said, the technological disruption, the competition, um, the the fact that the the future of work is changing so quickly and higher ed has has never been known for for being able to change that quickly. So we have all of these challenges, and it, it sort of feels like in higher ed administration that we're we're in like dodgeball, and we're we're getting you know hit from sort of every side. And so the short answer to your question is, I think the the educational world is collapsing in in a very real way, and it is a time for us to do the okay. So now what are we going? What are the opportunities here? How do we transform? How do we do a better job of 
of showing the world how I, I fundamentally believe that education has transformed my life. And I don't know what the dollar amount you would put on that is, but I know for myself, it, it it's, it's um, priceless. And how do we do a better job of telling those stories? How do we do a better job of capturing the ways that we transform our students' lives? And how do we change in a way that we continue to be relevant in a world that is with AI and, and technology so rapidly going to leave us behind if we don't. Mm-hmm. I um, there's so many thoughts as you, as you were talking about that. I agree with you that the collapse is happening, but I want to also state importantly that the term collapse feels so catastrophic, mm-hmm. and it's, mm-hmm. not. it's not. Things collapse all yeah. the time, right. and it's yeah. it's not good nor bad. It just is because the world's changing. There's so many disruptions. Yep. There's so many other forces. It's that an opportunity coming. to rebuild. But it's an opportunity to rebuild in the image that yeah. you need. The thing to keep in mind that I think a lot of us are let slip is the very basic human reflex, desire, inclination. We're learning machines. We always need to learn. We will mm-hmm. always learn. We are built for this purpose. Mm-hmm. And so when you understand that education is to help us learn, mm-hmm. then you can start to, you know, you can get rid of some of the artifacts. You can understand that these silos have been amazing, but one of the things that you can do is create a new and improved system where there's a web between these silos that you can you can get from one to the other very easily. Mm-hmm. Or mm-hmm. with with this emerging system that's coming out, these changes that are happening, we can do things like offer professional doctors to be mm-hmm. like, yes, this idea of a doctorate is that you were creating a steward of other people like you. That mm-hmm. is why you were doing it. Mm-hmm. What if we offered the world a space to incorporate professions themselves to say, what would a steward of this bridge builder look like Mm -hmm. between this classic knowledge and this applied space? What would that look like? And let's help you make more of these other categories Mm -hmm. of stewards. And like, those are the kinds of things that are so encouraging seeing my colleagues talk about and, and we can hear conversations in education of what it would look like. Mm -hmm. Um, Part of it's emergent. We don't know entirely what's happening, but that's also the fun part. Mm -hmm. You know, like Mm -hmm. the world is collapsing, but not, it's Mm -hmm. not really physically collapsing Mm -hmm. on you and Mm -hmm. you're still going to get up tomorrow and we're Mm -hmm. still going to, we're still going to be a part of this system. And it's not like everything goes to the wayside either. When, when a world collapses, another problem with the metaphor is that we think that everything is just like swept into the ocean Mm -hmm. (laughs) and it's gone. Mm -hmm. That's not at all true. It just takes on a different shape and it, and it, and it changes to fit the time. Yeah. A chance to use some of those same materials in different ways. Right. And when I think about, you know, the, the metaphor of the, the building collapsing and how we rebuild, and I think about the wealth of, you know, faculty expertise and knowledge and student uh, excitement and motivation and the the structures that we've built around new knowledge creation and recognizing how important that is for uh, literally the future of humanity. All of those things are still here, right? Yeah. The the excitement and the power for learning. How, do, how does AI change the way we learn, what we need to learn, how we learn, all of those questions. So the, they're just, it's the same materials. We just need to reconfigure them. Yes, there's... Um I, I used to teach um, histology as a part of my thing, right? Like, who does it these days? Of course. And, and one of the things I thought was so cool and so interesting, even though it wasn't my area of expertise, mm-hmm. was that um, the, the processes that your cartilage goes through to become bone. Oh, interesting. And, and when you think about the material of cartilage, mm-hmm. it's very flexible. It's mm-hmm. flexi-bendy. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not that great at being protective. Mm-hmm. 
but it's really good at creating some structure mm-hmm. that as you get older will la- later become very solid. And the process of going from cartilage to bone is the same stuff. It's called mm-hmm. ossification. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, world collapsing is the reverse of ossification. Mm-hmm. It's like we're becoming cartilage again. Mm-hmm. Like we can reestablish ourselves as bone. Mm-hmm. Um, but we we are in a space of flexibendi and it's mm-hmm. fun space. It's mm-hmm. it's a, a space that is for those that that might not like it, it can feel chaotic. Mm-hmm. But for those of us that do, it's as you said, where are my opportunities? Mm-hmm. Where are the options? Mm-hmm. And so um, I think CGU could start to stand for Cartilage Graduate University, <laughs> 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 as we're as we're seeing, because yeah. um, we're yeah. deossifying, right? And, th- yeah. and that's such an important yeah. thing. And other institutions are deossifying. You yeah. can see it. There's mm-hmm. there's like, wh- why are we stuck thinking this mm-hmm. way? There's so many other ways to bring mm-hmm. in. There's so many different disciplinary spaces. There's so many cross disciplinary. There's so mm-hmm. many things that an academy can do that we're not tapping into, and that we got stuck doing these other ways. Let's do it. Mm-hmm. I'm with you. Okay, so if <laughs> if we need to make a name change, do we submit it to the board right away? I don't know. I'm going to have to check on that. Okay. Well, um, I would ask you to consider it seriously. And um, in the meantime, I'm looking mm-hmm. forward to my other meetings with you of going back to our regularly scheduled programmings of, of being a part of this really fun institution. It, it's a lot of fun. There's a lot of challenges. There's a lot of opportunities and it is an exciting space. I, I do feel, you know, it's, it, it, you can look at some of the trends and, and, and be negative and pessimistic and, oh, you know, education doesn't have the value it did, once did. I, I don't believe any of ne- that. Nope, I totally... I think yeah. actually uh, education now at this moment in history is more important than it ever has 100%. been. 100%. One hundred, and that's exciting because yep. that means there's a there's a lot of opportunities to 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 ex, to ignite that spark in in other people. Yes, I'm with you a hundred percent, Michelle. It has been a true pleasure chatting it's with been you. A this pleasure afternoon. as always, Andy. Um, thank you so much for joining us, thank and you. look forward to the many other leadership roles you take on. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Post Normal Times. Thanks to our guest, and thanks to our support from Claremont Graduate University. If you enjoyed Boundary Crossing with us and want to hear more, make sure you follow us, spread the word, and tune in to our next episode.